Today's episode of The Beginning of the End is sponsored by Axel Brewing Company. Axel Brewing is making great beer in the Detroit area in the time-honored craft beer tradition with an eye toward innovation and an independent spirit. Enjoy any of their six beers, Red, Wit, Porter, IPA, Frank Black IPA, and Ruby Red IPA. Check them all out at axelbrewing.com. Let me ask you a question. What was the last thing you were obsessed with? Think about it. And what did it make you do? Maybe you binge-watched six seasons of a TV show in just a month, like I did with The Sopranos a bunch of years ago. Didn't sleep at all. Maybe you wrote a book. Whatever it was, it was probably all-consuming, right? It preoccupies your mind, distracted you, drove you to extreme lengths. It may have even wrecked you a bit, meaning it might have strained your relationships or your bank account. And you probably didn't do a good job taking care of yourself either. But you had to see it through, right? and nothing would be the same again. From WDET in Detroit, welcome to the beginning of the end. Stories about when, how, and why things end. I'm Alex Trajano. Thanks for listening. On this episode, I give you Alan Slutsky. He's a guitarist making his living as a blue-collar musician in Philly. He played all of the theater shows, played tons of weddings and bar mitzvahs, did sessions, and wrote a bunch of guitar method books under the moniker Dr. Licks. And while he was writing The Art of Rhythm and Blues, which covered the 50s and 60s, an obsession was born that lasted some two decades. And it all started because of a bass player from Detroit. There's a big difference between hearing music and transcribing. When you transcribe, you're you're writing down every note on the record. And when I started to transcribe the Motown stuff, you know, after years and years of hearing all those songs and playing them, I went, oh my God, listen to this bass part. And I was like, who is this bass player? So a friend of mine is a famous Philadelphia bassist named Gerald Weasley said, oh, that's James Jamerson. You should write a book about him. James Jamerson, one of the most influential bass players of all time. You probably danced many times to his grooves and didn't know it because he played on most of the Motown recordings and hits from 59 to 72. So this is where it started for Alan. He decided to write a book about James Jamerson and went to Detroit to meet his widow, Anne. She took him around Detroit, told him stories, introduced him to some of the other Motown musicians that were still around, and this really got him going. I got sucked into the story more and more. But the spooky part was uh, the last night I was there, I was at a real early flight, and Ann said, why don't you just crash on the sofa here, and I'll take you to the airport in the morning. So I'm laying on the sofa, and I'm, I'm vibing out because there's this big portrait of Jameson over the stairway. His eyes were very piercing in this photo, and I'm thinking, he's probably thinking, what is this white dude doing in my, in my house, you know? <laughs> And then I got this crazy feeling, and I, I kind of felt like he was like saying, can you help me? Because Jamerson had died a broken alcoholic, heartbroken, nobody knew who he was. That was it. I got sucked into the whole story, and I started, um, you know, making thousands of phone calls and running to L.A. and running to Detroit back and forth to, to you know, research the story which led to the discovery of the other musicians that Jamerson was associated with. These men were largely unknown and uncredited, and together they played on all of those Motown hits. They were the unsung heroes of popular music, and they were known as the Funk Brothers. Well, what they did, they were responsible for when 
there was a record, you know, when they, when they had a, a new song to be recorded. They were the guys that played the music. The incredible thing was it didn't matter who the artist was. The continuity at Motown was the band. You know, like if you had a Supremes record and all of a sudden you jumped to a Four Tops record, you, you know, it's a completely different set of singers. But the continuity was, it was the same musicians all the time. And uh, these were just local guys on the jazz and blues scene, and they were monumental musicians. They were the greatest hit machine in the history of music. I mean, if you add the number of number one hits that they cranked out, it was more than the Beatles, the Stones, Elvis, the Beach Boys, and a whole mess of other bands combined. Millions of people loved the music they made, but had no clue who they were. So for the next almost 30 years, the Funk Brothers were largely forgotten and lived in obscurity, some eking out a living playing gigs around Detroit. And for guitarist Robert White, who plays the lick at the beginning of that classic hit song, My Girl, it was hard for him to look back and enjoy his accomplishments. We were eating in a Beverly Hills restaurant. I took him out to eat. This is before the movie. And um, the waiter came over to take our order. And just at that moment, whatever the, the stereo system in the place was playing music, my girl came on. And Robert said, to, he got real excited. And he said to the waiter, hey, man, you hear that? That's... M-. And he stopped dead. And then he looked down at the menu and he said, I'll have the fried chicken or whatever you ordered. I don't know. And uh, the waiter took the order and walked away. And I said, Robert, you're going to tell them I was in. Why didn't you tell them? And he said, eh. He, he would have never believed it. He looked at me and said, look at this tired old fool trying to tell me he played that line. He couldn't even own the thing that he created. And that broke my heart. Alan was even more determined now to make this film that would take the Funk Brothers out of obscurity and into the warm glow of the recognition they deserved. It was everything to him, and he went all the way. He flew back and forth to Detroit and made over a thousand pitches to get funded. That was um, a great thing and a horrible thing because three years later, I had spent $64,000. I was completely broke. It was all on credit cards. Uh, all I knew was I was broke and I had just killed three years of my life, 18 hours a day. Wow. And my wife, my wife hated me and, <laughs> you know, everything was nuts. And he kept seeking funding for another eight years. And when things got tough, he did what a lot of musicians do to get by. Every guitar I owned was in the pawn shop. Like, when I was doing gigs, I would have to call up friends and borrow a guitar to play my gigs. And I was gigging a lot. But, but I, all my guitars were in the pawn shop, about eight different instruments, nine different instruments. So I had just taken my guitar, my last guitar, my Strat, into the pawn shop. And then he gets called for a recording session that he needed to be at ASAP. So what am I going to do? I don't have a guitar. So I borrowed money from my next-door neighbor, who was a friend of mine. I went back to the pawn shop where I had just pawned the guitar, took the guitar out, went and played the session, got paid, and put the guitar back into pawn, took the money and gave it to my neighbor. Oh, wow. So how were you paying for everything besides putting your stuff in pawn? When we finally got funded on the movie, I had spent $150,000. And um, the funding... Would you say spent or in debt? A combination of both. Well, I spent. I was probably in debt for seventy-five of it, and I had put in seventy-five of hard cash and seventy-five in credit card and other debt loans. There's a, there's a song by uh, Genesis called "You Got to Get In to Get Out." Mm-hmm. Whereas you get to a point where you're in so deep, if you give up, you lose everything. 
Right. So you just, you know, at that point, you have to make the decision. Well, I'm just going for broke. I'm just in. When we come back, Alan stays in it to win it, but at what cost? We'll get into it after a word from our sponsor. This is the beginning of the end. BRB. Meet Dan Riley and Scott King of Axel Brewing Company, based right here in the Detroit area. Dan's the president and Scott is the brewer. Dan's a former media exec that drives a Volvo. And Scott is the unshaven artist type who quotes Frank Zappa and grows most of his own food. They kind of remind me of the odd couple. Here's Scott. I'm not a salesman, I'm not a businessman, and I tried it for a long time and I failed. And here's Dan. Me traditionally being a suit and a middle management executive, um, I thought he was probably a guy I'd like to have a beer with and argue about music and books and politics. (laughs) But what I found out is that really they're not all that dissimilar. And together, they're making some really good beer. The very first meeting we had, we started talking about literature and music and and bikes. We talked about a lot of things that didn't have anything to do with beer, and we established, you know, a real strong baseline of, of common ground. And this common ground led to crafting a selection of beers that will accompany you when you do the things you love to do. I think the funny thing is the common ground are some of the things that beer is around. And it's books and music and art and life and stories and you know I think if I was a brewer we'd be driving each other nuts and if he was a marketer he'd be driving me nuts (laughs) you can learn more about all of their beers at axelbrewing.com all right back to the show wait a sec though before we go back I just want to say that this is the last episode of season one and I want to thank all of you that have hung with us supported us with a review in iTunes or simply told a friend to check us out And super special thanks to those who recently donated a little money to help us make Season 2. Your support is greatly appreciated, believe me. And if you haven't given yet, it's never too late to help us grow. Go to beginningoftheend.org and you'll see the link to give. Also, all of Season 1 is available at our site or through your favorite podcast app. Thanks. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to the beginning of the end. I'm Alex Trajano. Alan Slutsky's whole life became a crusade to tell the story of the Funk Brothers after the ghost of James Jamerson spoke to him. And after 11 years of struggle, countless rejections, and $150,000 in debt, it finally, finally started to happen. And I kept dangling this film in front of him saying, look, it's going to happen, just hang in there with me, hang in. But after, you know, six, seven, eight years, you know, they started to treat me, you know, they were polite, but they started to treat me like the crazy ant in the attic. Oh, there's Slutsky talking about his film again, you know. And then um, we finally got the money. And I called up Joe Hunter and I said, I got a check for you. We got funded, we're making the movie. He says, oh, come on, man, I'm too old for this kind of stuff. Don't mess with me. And I said, I'm dead serious. Come over here, I have a check for you. And he came over and, and, you know, he came to the door and I just stuck it right in his hand and he was flabbergasted. Everything Alan wanted was coming together. And there he was in Detroit, arm in arm with the Funk Brothers, making the film at the studio where all those hits were recorded. And I remember going out into the alley behind Hitsville and I just started to cry hysterically. I was like looking up at the sky, it was snowing. 
and uh, it looked like Starry Night. You know, the flakes coming down. It looked like a Van Gogh painting or something. And I, I just realized, you know, it's very rare that you spend two decades praying for something, and then all of a sudden there's a a, a big yes to your request. And that's when I knew that night, you know, it was really happening. And then, of course, you know, when we had our debut at the Apollo, then I knew we were off and running. Big time. Now everyone knew who the Funk Brothers were. You know, a lot of things happened to them that, you know, were just so far past anything they'd ever done. Like, you know, we had a presidential audience at the White House. Mm -hmm. Um, That was incredible. It was during the Bush years. Uh, I was there, you know, I was their chaperone. I was their manager. And we were supposed to meet President Bush, and um, we were in a holding room. And this woman grabbed my hand, I guess she was a handler or something, and she said, oh, Mr. Funk, come right this way. <laughs> so so I started going, you know, I started saying, well, you know, I'm fumfing, I'm going, well, you, no, you don't understand, I'm just a matter, and all of a sudden there's there's President Bush with his hand out saying, welcome to the White House. And so they took this picture, and I look, I have the weirdest look on my face because I'm like, you know, I wasn't used to being Mr. Funk. But they threw a really nice event, and they, they treated the Funk Brothers great. They were sitting right behind um, President Bush and his wife, uh, Condoleezza Rice, Dick Cheney, the president of Chile, Colin Powell, mm. and then they had a luncheon, and it was, it was beautiful. What was going on in your head during that time? It's got to be surreal. Like I, I remember I said to one of them, like, uh, I said to Joe Hunter, hey, Joe, this, this ain't Phelps Lounge, is it? <laughs> and he said, no, no, it's not. You know. Okay, so the Funk Brothers were overnight stars, and they went on to win two Grammys for the soundtrack. Their legacy was restored. And for those of you that saw the film Standing in the Shadows of Motown, this is where the story ends, right? But it's not where it ends for Alan Slutsky. Now their official manager, Alan has plans to take the boys on the road to build on the momentum created by the film. And this is where things started to get a little tough for a few reasons. First, one of them was pushing 80, and uh, the others were in their mid to late 70s. And uh, we did a European tour in the winter. It was very difficult on them. You know, it was 14 cities. Eddie Willis had um, polio. I can't tell you how many airports I pushed him through on his wheelchair. And then Joe Messina wouldn't go on the road without his wife, who had MS and was in a wheelchair. And then... The uh, guest artists we had on the tour were Billy Preston and uh, Steve Winwood. Well, Billy Preston was in horrible shape at the time. He had passed a few years afterwards, but he had diabetes and he, he needed dialysis every night. And uh, he was in a wheelchair. So I was pushing like three wheelchairs across Europe. And secondly, there's the whole money thing. Now, Alan wasn't totally comfortable talking about this, but I pushed him a bit. The first gig we had, it was in Boca Raton, Florida. They were making $50,000. And they were already angry. Fifty thousand. I mean, these are guys making who made fifty dollars a night, and the eight guys, you know, they're making fifty thousand. Out of the fifty thousand, you have to pay for the the flights, the hotels. They just didn't understand the concept of overhead, you know, because they never had to pay any overhead in all their years at the the studio and all their years at the clubs. And in in their defense, you know, these were old men. They didn't have time. You know, not, they weren't twenty two year old kids that you can sit there and and play sock hops and build your career up. You know, they if they were going to get a payday, it had to happen instantly. So I understood. But they expected me to be like Barry Gordy. In other words, Barry was the one that got him the work. 
Barry, Barry put the, the band together. Barry got the arrangers to write the charts. Barry got the songwriters to write the songs. Barry got the artists. So everything was always done for him. And then at the end of the day, they would just show up, play, and get a check. Just like the old days. Play and get paid. They wanted to back out of the uh, European tour at the last minute. And I said, guys, this is a clear channel tour. If you back out after they spent a half a million dollars, you'll get sued. They'll come after you. First of all, your careers will be ruined, and they'll sue you. And they were like, let them. Go ahead, let them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, do you, what can you say to that? You what know? happened? I, I mean, well, I, I finally got them to, to go, and it was an historic tour. I mean, it was... We, we, I'll never forget, we played Royal Albert Hall, uh, Royal Festival Hall, which was the home of the London Philharmonic, and we sold the place out, and we got five-star reviews all across Europe. Alan says the horror stories from the road were not to be believed, but he maintained, even though some people close to him thought differently. The side men who were there knew what happened. I mean, when you're on a, a, a major European tour and the side men, who were friends of mine, were all begging me to just leave, just go home. Because I was, I was getting beat up so bad from at the time from the guys. They were just in, astounded. We tried to set up things. We wanted to do things to build something so that they would go off into the sunset comfortable financially and everything. If there was two cents in the in the uh, bank account, they, they were like piranha. There was never any operating money left in the after a gig. They just came in and swooped in and just got rid of all of it. They just only were thinking immediate money. That's all they ever were concerned with. So they didn't want to invest anything in the act. They they would reluctantly go on the road because they knew they could get some money. Alan thought about that night when James Jamerson's portrait spoke to him and asked for his help. And he thought about everything that happened to get him to the summit. How hard he struggled for 11 years, the six-figure debt he took on, and how it affected his family life. And now they're the talk of the town. And it was starting to slip through his fingers because Alan was trying to build a future for the Funk Brothers, but they wanted the Barry Gordy machine back. My last week with them was I had them on The Tonight Show, uh, American Idol. We did uh, about two or three other TV shows, and we had just come off this huge tour of Europe. And then I was, I was canned on the set of uh, American Idol, and that was it. Making peace with something like that is tough. It was quite a, a, an emotional holocaust for me. They really had no idea how much I had put myself through. And um, I haven't really talked about it too much over the years. I actually wrote a 400-page book called uh, Dreams Delivered, Dreams Denied. It was kind of cathartic because I was so wounded by the whole thing. And it had all the details, all the dirt. But I, I've never put it out. I just, I, I can't bring myself to, to ruin the Cinderella stories. Like, I still hope something good will come out of it. Maybe one day I'll put it out. I don't know. The Funk Brothers split into a couple of camps and soon most of them passed away. Only three that were featured in the film are still with us. Jack Ashford, 
who play tambourine and vibes, and guitarists Joe Messina and Eddie Willis. And as for Alan Slutsky, he's following a new obsession by making a film about the legendary Sigma Sound Studios, where many of the great Philadelphia soul sessions were held. Sounds like a familiar theme, right? A couple years later, I, m- I met Paul McCartney, and he said something really funny to me. He said, welcome to the club. And I said, what do you mean, welcome to the club? And he said, well, you know, the club of people who do something of significance. You know, some of the things that I went through with the Funk Brothers, uh, you, you just couldn't put a, a, a price tag on it. You know, when, when, when you're sitting there with Paul McCartney and he's telling you he did something important, you know, how do you put a price tag on that? I, I guess, uh, you know, to a certain extent, I'm, I'm driven to, to try to do something with my career, you know, I, I, other than just play gigs. Beginning of the End is a production of WDET, and this episode was produced by Lou Bluen. Thanks to Shelby Jopi, Max David Howard, Laura Weber Davis, all the Detroit bands that came to our rescue, Ghostly Songs, and Duende for our theme song. Thanks to our sponsor, Axel Brewing. Check out their beers at axelbrewing.com. Tell people about us. Follow us. We're at B-O-T-E Podcast, and I'm at A Trujano Detroit. More info at beginningoftheend.org, and you can donate there as well. We really need your help to make season two. Please give. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. The end.